Welcome to NTD Evening News. It's a defining moment in the nation's history. The U.S. Supreme Court is considering whether former President Trump will be disqualified from running for office. NTD's Arlene Richards will join us in just a moment with the latest. The special counsel reaches a conclusion about President Biden's handling of classified documents. Find out what the report says and how Biden responds. President Biden joins House Democrats in Virginia as they strategize how to take back their majority in the House this election year. NTD's Melina Weiskup is there. A major shakeup in Ukraine's military today. President Volodymyr Zelensky is replacing the country's military chief, who many see as a national hero. We bring you what implications this has and how Ukrainians react. Over a million people are now sheltering in a city in the southern Gaza Strip. But Israel says it's one of the final strongholds for Hamas. Will the IDF conduct operations there? Jason Perry reports. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Today, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments about whether former President Trump can be on the Colorado ballot. The case involves significant questions about interpreting Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which bars insurrectionists from holding office. Joining us now is NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards. Arlene, you had a chance to listen to some of the oral arguments today. Can you give us a sense on how the court may be leaning? I think the court's leaning more toward keeping Trump on the ballot. A majority of the justices were concerned that there could be chaos or some other kind of backlash if states are allowed to disqualify presidential candidates. But, the, but Katanji Brown Jackson, Justice Jackson, had an interesting question about insurrection. So let's listen to that. The Colorado Supreme Court concluded that the violent attempts of the petitioner supporters uh, in this case to halt the count uh, on January 6th qualified as an insurrection uh, as defined by Section 3. And I read your opening brief to accept uh, that those events counted as an insurrection. Um, but then your reply seemed to suggest that they were not. So what, what is your position oh, as to that? We, we never accepted or conceded in our opening brief that this was an insurrection. What we said in our opening brief was President Trump did not engage in any act that can plausibly be characterized as insurrection. All right, so why would not this not engage. be an insurrection? What is your argument that it's not? Your reply brief says that it wasn't because I think you say um, it did not involve an organized attempt to overthrow right. the government. So That's one of many reasons. But for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. Now, aside from that single question from Justice Jackson, there was no other discussion about Trump's conduct on January 6th or whether or not he incited an insurrection. Hmm. And tell us what Section 3 states and what are Trump's arguments? So the language of Section 3 is what's mostly relied on in this case and how the court will interpret it. And it is generally understood that the law prohibits certain people who previously took an oath of office from holding future offices if they participated in an insurrection. It's also called the disqualification clause, which is what the challengers want to happen in this case. They want Trump to be disqualified from the ballot. The relevant language of that law states no person shall hold any office under the United States who have previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States and shall have engaged in an insurrection. 
So Trump's attorneys have argued in this case that the president is not an officer of the United States. They say President Trump did not engage in insurrection and that only Congress can enforce Section 3. So therefore, the Supreme Court has to consider, is the president an officer? Did he engage in an insurrection? And is Congress required to enforce Section 3? So at the end of the day, this is an election case, and whatever decision the Supreme Court comes up with or, or ends up ruling on, it will have a major impact on future presidential elections. Hmm. Well, Arlene, thank you for that update. Thank you. Former President Trump expressing optimism today as liberal and conservative justices alike sound skeptical of the Colorado ruling to keep him off the ballot. Reactions are also pouring in from both sides of the aisle. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. First, tell us about Trump's response to today's Supreme Court hearing. Good evening to you, Tiff. Former President Trump today sounded optimistic about where things are going next as he says that the oral arguments before the Supreme Court today were, quote, a beautiful thing to watch. He also asked that he thinks his team's arguments were very strong. Meanwhile, he also again bashed the case itself as election interference. Watch. I consider it to be more election interference by the Democrats. Can you take the person that's leading everywhere and say, hey, we're not going to let you run? You know, I think that's pretty tough to do, but uh, I'm leaving it up to the Supreme Court. And Trump also went on to accuse President Biden of weaponizing the government, alleging that every one of these cases comes out from the Biden White House. And President Biden has previously denied such allegations, saying that he has never told the DOJ what to do or what not to do. Meanwhile, reactions are also pouring in from both sides of the aisle, with each side making a different case about democracy. Watch. I'm hopeful the justices will look at the facts with an open mind uh, and make a, a big decision for the United States to protect our democracy from the danger of another Trump uh, candidacy and another Trump presidency. Democrats like to talk about democracy, but Democrats are desperately trying to stop the American people from deciding who will be our next president. They couldn't care less about our Constitution. And when it comes to what's going to come next, the Supreme Court justices have agreed to fast track this case, especially as both parties are urging for a fast decision. We know that Super Tuesday on March 5th is coming up very soon as 15 states will hold their primaries on that day. Meanwhile, while it's not sure how long it's going to take this Supreme Court to actually issue a ruling, there has been precedence for a very fast ruling and a major election case. Remember back in 2000, during the Bush v. Gore case, the Supreme Court actually handed the presidency to George W. Bush just one day after the case was argued. Tiff. Iris, thank you for that update. Former Trump advisor Peter Navarro has been ordered to report to prison Thursday. A judge denied his request to remain free while he appeals his conviction. Last month, he was sentenced to four months in prison for defying a congressional subpoena in the January 6th Capitol breach probe. In contrast, Trump ally Steve Bannon was also sentenced to four months in prison, but the judge in his case allowed him to remain free while he appealed his conviction. It's not clear when Navarro will be required to report to prison. His lawyer has not responded to a request for comment. Special counsel Robert Herr has released a report on President Biden's handling of classified documents. The conclusion is Biden will not face any criminal charges. 
The report concluded that Biden willfully retained and disclosed highly classified materials when he was a private citizen and that his actions present serious risks to national security. There were documents about military and foreign policy in Afghanistan and other sensitive national security matters. The special counsel concluded that charges are not warranted. Part of the reasoning being it would be difficult to prosecute Biden and that Biden cooperated with the investigation. But Hearst's office also cited what it referred to as Biden's limited memory. Investigators said Biden would likely present himself to a jury as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Biden reacted to the special counsel report. He said in a statement, I was pleased to see they reached the conclusion. I believed all along they would reach. President Biden huddles with House Democrats at their retreat in Northern Virginia as the minority strategizes how to take back the House of Representatives. Entity's Melina Weiskup reports from the retreat. One recurring theme that we've heard throughout the course of this entire Democrat retreat is them trying to paint Republicans as the party of chaos, unable to get anything done in the halls of Congress. And this is perfect timing for Democrats, considering the events that we saw unfold over the past week with back-to-back -back failed votes. President Biden actually in his speech just an hour ago appraised the unified minority for being able to tank those votes, such as by preventing Republicans from being able to impeach his DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and then right after after that, they were able to tank a standalone Israel aid package. Now, in addition to trying to take jabs at the Republican Party, Democrats are also laying out their priorities and their campaign strategy for this election season. They're focused on topics like abortion rights, gun regulations, etc. But importantly enough, they're also trying to get their message together on the economy. We know this is a huge issue for voters heading into the 2024 presidential election. Here's what the president had to say about this during today's keynote speech. The things we're doing not only help people, but they're reducing the deficit of good economic policy. We're in a position to win in 2024, I think. Now, keep in mind, this comes against a backdrop of repeated low poll ratings for President Biden. As a matter of fact, a recent NBC poll shows President Biden behind former President Trump by 20 points. And Democrats, of course, are trying to brush this off when they were asked by reporters how they plan to separate themselves from these low poll numbers as they try to take back the majority in the House. Democrats argued that uh, Americans haven't felt the impact of the legislation that they were able to pass in a Democrat-controlled Congress. Listen to this. We have work to do in making sure we're communicating to uh, communities what we have done. Unemployment at record lows, inflation is cooling, and wages are rising. But we know that not everyone is feeling the benefits of that economic recovery yet. And House Democrats are ready to finish the job. Now, Democrats have literally themed this conference with the words, finish the job. So we're likely to see this as a recurring theme throughout this campaign cycle as Democrats fight to take back the majority in the House of Representatives. Reporting from Leesburg, Virginia, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A huge shakeup in Ukraine's military today. President Volodymyr Zelensky replacing the country's military chief, whom many Ukrainians see as a national hero. This comes after months of speculation about a rift between Zelensky and General Valery Zeluzhny. Today we had a frank discussion about what needs to be changed in the army. Urgent changes. The announcement marks the biggest rift in Ukraine's military since the start of the war. Replacing Zelushny is seen as a huge gamble. It comes at a time when Russian forces are gaining the upper hand nearly two years into the war. 
Everyday Ukrainians who spoke to the media today said they are not happy with the decision. Firing the military chief could hurt Zelensky politically. Public polling shows trust in the general at over 90 percent. That's a bit higher than Zelensky's 77 percent from late last year. The former commander of Ukraine's land forces will now take over as military chief. Israel Defense Forces continue to battle their way further into the Gaza Strip as the fighting intensifies against Hamas terrorists. But will the IDF conduct military operations in Rafah, where over a million displaced Palestinians are now sheltering? NTD's Jason Perry has the war update. Residents in the Gaza Strip surveyed the damage after an apparent Israeli strike hit the city of Rafah on Thursday morning. Rafah, which is in southern Gaza, is home to over a million people sheltering there now, more than half the population of the entire Gaza Strip. Today, if you throw a stone from the roof, in Rafah specifically, it will hit 10 people easily. What about three rockets coming down on a house? And on Wednesday, residents in Rafa were seen running between tents, only to find the remains of a car that was hit by an apparent airstrike. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday said Rafa is one of the last remaining strongholds of Hamas, and he's instructed the Israel Defense Forces to prepare to operate there. However, White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby said he hasn't seen any plan that shows Israel is going to conduct major operations in Rafah anytime soon. And he added this. Any such plan, when you have more than a million folks that have been displaced down there, um, any such plan would have to factor in. A responsible military plan would factor in making sure that you can protect those civilians. And as I said, uh, given the circumstances and the conditions there that we see right now, uh, we think a military operation at this time would be a disaster for those people. But Israel, on the other hand, appears to be open about their plans to battle terrorists in Rafah and also their plans to continue protecting civilians in the war. Those efforts will continue nevertheless as the IDF dismantles the main Hamas stronghold of Khan Yunus and advances on its last bastion, Rafah. We will, of course, secure safe passage for civilians out of a war zone where terrorists are trying to use them as human shields. And the Israel Defense Forces on Thursday reportedly detained two Americans in the Gaza Strip during a raid in Khan Yunus. The State Department did not release their names but said they are seeking additional information about the incident. This comes as Israel has almost 100,000 of its own citizens displaced from northern Israel as the Iran-backed terrorist group Hezbollah continues to fire missiles and rockets into northern Israel. On Thursday, one of the strikes severely injured an Israeli soldier and injured two others. The Israeli military said it retaliated by striking Hezbollah terror infrastructure and a military compound in Lebanon where the launches took place. This comes just the day after Israel rejected Hamas's ceasefire proposal to release the remaining hostages in the Gaza Strip. Officials from the Hamas terrorist group on Thursday met with officials in Egypt to continue those talks for a ceasefire. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, the border deal has collapsed, so are there other ways to change policy at the border? Our guest says the Biden administration already has the tools needed. California state officials step in to address Oakland's rising crime, and the former police chief sues the city and mayor. That's coming.
Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Some breaking news. Former Fox host Tucker Carlson just released his long-awaited interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The interview is over two hours long and covers a range of topics from the Russia-Ukraine war, NATO, the sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipeline, as well as artificial intelligence and Elon Musk. A new national security bill presented by Senate Leader Chuck Schumer overcame its first hurdle today with 67 votes in favor and 32 against. The amended foreign aid package will be debated and amended on the Senate floor. It's a very good thing that the Senate has just voted to proceed to the national security supplemental. This is a good first step. The new bill includes $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, and nearly $5 billion for Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific to deter Chinese aggression in the region. It also includes close to $10 billion for humanitarian assistance for civilians in Gaza, the West Bank, and other conflicts worldwide. The bill does not include any provisions for the border. Republicans blocked a broader bill that included border security measures earlier this week. Republican senators have already signaled that they will introduce amendments that will prolong the process indefinitely. If the bill is approved by the Senate, it faces uncertainty in the House, where many Republicans oppose Ukraine aid. Now that the border deal has collapsed in the Senate, the question remains how to make changes to policy at the southern border. Joining us now to discuss the border crisis is Rodney Scott. He's a former U.S. Border Patrol chief and a senior fellow for border security at Texas Public Policy Foundation. Rodney Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Thank you for having me again. Really appreciate it. Now that the Senate bipartisan border bill has collapsed, what do you see next in this regards? Well, I really hope that we'll get back to the table and this time actually have some transparent conversations. I think one of the big reasons the bill failed, not the least of which is it was not a good bill, but it was put together in secrecy and there was all kinds of uh, conspiracy theories and stuff coming out before it ever hit the light of day. Uh, unlike what the House did this last year with HR2, that was actually developed in a collaborative manner, very transparent. Um, and, and people knew what was in it before it actually got pushed to the floor. Um, I, I, I wanted to see them get back together, have a discussion, but let's do it in the open so we know what's going on and, and different people can chime in that actually have expertise in these areas. Hmm. And the White House is now saying that ICE will reduce deportations and detention capacity if Republicans don't pass the border bill. Now, Senator Cotton is saying that this is, quote, blackmail. What is your take on that? Can you really reduce zero? This administration isn't deporting anybody anyway. It's an absolute, it's beyond the bare minimum. They're violating the law. They're not actually detaining people they're supposed to detain. Um, it's all just rhetoric. We know what it takes to secure the border. We handed the Biden administration a very secure border. He could reinstate border security with the stroke of a pen. They don't even need everything that was in that bill. Some of what was in that bill would help, but we just need a president that actually really wants to secure the border and actually puts actions behind it and not just talking points. On that note, Texas's Governor Greg Abbott is saying that President Biden already has all the tools he needs to secure the border. He doesn't need a bill like this. Others are arguing that this bill that has died would have changed the legislation or the incentive for asylum seekers or people who want to enter the country. What is your understanding of these different takes? Yeah, so the truth is always somewhere in the middle. You can look at the last administration and even administrations before that. 
the Biden administration has what it needs to secure the border. They just refuse to use the tools like remain in Mexico. That's the key thing. So their answer is to change the asylum rules to change how asylum cases are actually uh, adjudicated. And that's valid, by the way. We need that change. But they overstate what that would do to secure the border. Right now, over 59% of the people crossing the southwest border are adult males. They're not families. They're not people seeking asylum. Um, so it, 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 neither is 100% accurate, but I lean, towards Secret uh, I lean towards Governor Abbott's position because we did it. We did it in the last administration without these laws. These, the changes in the laws would just make it easier, um, but, but they're not needed. Biden's just not being truthful. Hmm. Now, one rising group of asylum seekers, whatever you want to call them, are illegal Chinese immigrants. And now a CBS 60 Minutes report is noting that the Chinese version of TikTok Douyin is helping them with step-by-step -step guides on how to find the holes in the border wall. What do you make of that report? Well, people need to remember about China as well. No one leaves China without permission. And the vast majority of the people the United States Border Patrol is arresting now are uh, young adult males coming across the border from China. You've seen just groups of them, hundreds at a time. This is controlled by the Chinese government. It doesn't surprise me at all that there's different guides on, on how to get across. But at the end of the day, that's almost irrelevant because you're not, nothing crosses the southwest border without coordinating with the Mexican cartels. And the cartels pick and choose where you cross so that they can intentionally create that gap in another location to smuggle something else across the border. But I'm glad you brought this up because a lot of people misunderstand the border and they think this is about Latin America or they think it's about Mexico. It's over 180 different nations, the last report I heard from Border Patrol, from around the entire world. And we don't have databases from all these places. China doesn't share their criminal records with us. So we have no idea when they quote unquote get vetted at the border before being released. That's a joke. We don't know who these people are, but common sense would say there are some significant threats to this country in these large groups of people coming across the border. And the Chinese is just one of the examples. Rodney Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, you have a good day, appreciate it. In New York City today, seven illegal immigrants have been indicted in connection with an attack on two police officers in Times Square last month. And according to Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, five out of the seven suspects had been arrested before. This assault, uh, as it did to many of you, sickened me uh, and outraged me. Based on our thorough investigation, I stand here today confident uh, that we have identified the roles of every person who broke the law, uh, and participated in this heinous attack. Bragg has been pressed about his decision to release five suspects without bail, considering their immigration status and lack of connection to the community. All seven suspects now face charges, including assault, obstruction, evidence tampering, and hindering prosecution. The NYPD said the physical altercation ensued as officers tried to break up a disorderly group outside a migrant shelter. According to police, the officers were repeatedly kicked and punched and were left with minor injuries. A former California police chief fired from his post last year has sued the city of Oakland and its mayor. He says he was unlawfully terminated in retaliation. Amid rising crime, state officials are now stepping in. On Thursday, Governor Gavin Newsom and Attorney General Rob Bonta said they will deploy state attorneys to boost criminal prosecutions in Oakland and the East Bay. 
This comes as Newsom announced on Tuesday he would deploy 120 California Highway Patrol officers to Oakland to assist with targeted crackdowns on criminal activity, including vehicle and retail theft. Recent footage posted on the Citizen app shows a man dressed in black moving from table to table, quickly snatching phones from their displays and stuffing them into his pockets. He then walks out the store and passes by two police cars. Oakland has been without a permanent police chief since LaRon Armstrong was fired, even as violent crime, robbery and vehicle theft climbed. Armstrong filed a lawsuit in Alameda County Superior Court on Monday seeking reinstatement as police chief. Mayor Sheng Tao fired him in February 2023 after a probe ordered by the oversight monitor found he failed to properly investigate and discipline a sergeant who was involved in a hit-and-run with his patrol car. Mayor Tao said she had lost confidence in the police chief. In an interview with California Insider's CMAC Karami, Armstrong said this plunged Oakland's reputation since many in the community feared they would become a victim. People not willing to go outside at night. I know so many seniors in our community who have seen me and said, uh, Chief, I don't come out at night because I'm afraid. I'm afraid to drive in the city at night. I'm afraid to shop at night. I'm afraid to park my car in certain areas because I know that my car is going to be burglarized. Uh, people are leaving their entire car with all windows down because they've been burglarized so many times that they don't want to replace windows anymore, so they just leave them all down and remove everything of value from their cars. And so it really has become something that uh, people are even adjusting to, uh, the lack of safety. And so that really is concerning. He says there are reports of people hearing gunshots around the clock in the city. It also doesn't help that police staffing has been a challenge, leading to long response times. Armstrong adds that existing policies make it difficult for police to do their job and that people have prioritized officer accountability over community needs. For example, a policy says an officer cannot pursue a burglar unless the crime committed is a felony. A stolen car is not a violent felony. A burglary uh, committed is not a violent felony, so then Oakland police officers cannot pursue that car. But how does that look to the public? If you're the person whose car was just stolen and you're standing there watching your car drive off and watching a police officer that cannot pursue that car, that definitely has an impact on that community member who now believes that the police didn't do anything. And that's the story that they tell. Unfortunately, it's not the officer's fault. It's the policy that prohibits the officer from pursuing that car that stops him from pursuing it. Last month, In-N-Out Burger announced it would close its first location in its 75-year history due to car break-ins, property damage, theft and robberies at its only restaurant in Oakland. Coming up, have the Supreme Court justices given any indication on how they'll rule in the Colorado ballot case? Our guest says he expects the high court to side with former President Trump. Senator Bernie Sanders criticizing big pharma CEOs, accusing them of overcharging the American people while selling drugs much more cheaply in other countries. A highlights from a Senate hearing and how the drug company executives are responding. That's coming. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. Special counsel Robert Hur released a report on President Biden's handling of classified documents. It concluded that Biden willfully retained and disclosed highly classified materials as a private citizen, but didn't seek criminal charges. 
The Senate voted to advance a $95 billion foreign aid package that covers funding for Ukraine and Israel. The bill does not include any provisions for the border. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky decided to replace the country's military chief. It marks the biggest rift in Ukraine's military since the start of the war. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments about whether Colorado can keep former President Trump off the ballot. A majority of the justices voiced concern about the potential backlash this could cause if states are allowed to decide whether candidates can be disqualified. Joining us now to discuss how Supreme Court justices received the Colorado ballot case today, we have Mark Miller. He's a senior attorney at Pacific Legal. Mark Miller, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Great to be back with you, Tiffany. Thank you. Now, in your view, what were the hardest arguments against Trump heard in court today? Yeah, so today was a tough case, actually, for the state of Colorado. The Secretary of State had thrown uh, Trump off the ballot, and the Colorado Supreme Court, four to three, agreed with that decision. But today, the Supreme Court, the, the justices pretty much rejected all of Colorado's arguments. At least that's what I would predict. It may be an eight to one decision or nine to nothing, but it was not a good day for the state of Colorado. And what do you make of the way the justices responded to these arguments? Well, one thing, you know, as lawyers and, uh, you know, as a lawyer of a number of years, I like to believe in the rule of law and our justices do too. And I think it was important to the justices to show that this is not a red blue issue. This is not a Democrat versus Republican. This is a, what is the correct interpretation, interpretation of the law? And so you saw, for example, Justice Jackson looking at the argument about whether the president, uh, President Trump, can be decided to be an insurrectionist and then thrown off the ballot when president is not listed in the 14th Amendment as somebody who could be held to be an insurrectionist and thrown off the ballot. So Justice Jackson, who, of course, is a Democrat appointee, uh, pushed that hard, pushed the state of Colorado hard, and she seemed to be genuinely persuaded that that should be the beginning and end of the case. Now, prominent legal analyst Jonathan Turley noted that some of the toughest and most skeptical questions came from the left of the court. What do you make of these justices' line of questioning? Well, and yeah, I agree with uh, Professor Turley, and, and I think his point and mine are similar, which is the justices wanted to show this is about the rule of law. This isn't a left or right issue. This isn't a politicized decision that we're going to see. This is, let's look at the 14th Amendment, which you know, we haven't had to interpret this third section of the 14th Amendment in 150 years, uh, but let's look at it. Let's look at the history. Let's look at what the justices would have thought when it was uh, passed in the Reconstruction era. And uh, I think, as Turley said, the Kagan, Jackson, even Sotomayor pushed hard on the idea that President Trump could be removed from the ballot ahead of the election. Justice Sotomayor, I'm not 100 percent sure that she will come down in favor of Trump remaining on the ballot. But as for the rest of the justices, I think that's a, a pretty reasonable bet, although you have to be careful whenever betting on an outcome at the Supreme Court. And what about Trump's strongest argument? What does he have? Well, it depended on which justice you, you listened to. And you know, I think what you're going to see here, Tiffany, is uh, justices explaining the way they reach their result. And the justices may come up to different ways to get to the same result, which is he remains on the ballot. Um, Justice Alito felt that the 14th Amendment says that Congress can lift the disability. So even if President Trump was an insurrectionist, he would still remain on the ballot and it would be up to Congress to decide if he won the election, can they remove 
the the insurrectionist label and let him be president since the people would have voted for Trump in that hypothetical. Justice Kavanaugh, you know, pointed out that the lower court, one of the dissenting justices who was a Democrat appointee at the Colorado Supreme Court, had had said this was wrong and that he had never seen a process like this before. So Kavanaugh seemed to think it was basically a question of fairness. So it just depends on which justice you hear from. Jonathan Mitchell, the lawyer for Trump, certainly emphasized what Justice Jackson seemed to believe, which is that the president is simply not listed in the 14th Amendment as somebody who can be removed from the ballot. And based on what we heard from the justices today, what can we expect the ruling to be? So I think we should expect a quick ruling, and I think I think that the justices are going to say either eight to one or nine to nothing that President Trump has to remain on the ballots across the country and that if he's an insurrectionist, that may be a question for another day, but Colorado can't jump the gun, if you will, and remove him from the ballot today. Mark Miller, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. It's now illegal to use AI voices and robocalls. The Federal Communications Commission just ruled this is after an AI mimic of President Biden's voice discouraged voters in the New Hampshire primaries. The FCC chairwoman said today the ruling is to prevent scammers from hoodwinking voters and also to stop bad actors from extorting family members and imitating celebrities. Senator Bernie Sanders gathered big pharma CEOs today and accused them of greed. He pointed out that many drugs are extremely expensive in the U.S., but much cheaper in other countries. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. Drugs mean nothing to anybody who cannot afford it. Senator Bernie Sanders led a hearing Thursday interrogating big pharma CEOs on why drug prices are so high in America, but so low elsewhere. How could your companies charge us in some cases 10 times more than they charge Canadians or people around the world for the same drug. How do they get away with this when so many of our people cannot afford the high price? Sanders pointed out that Bristol-Myers Squibb charges Americans over $7,000 for the blood clot drug Eliquis. In Canada, it charges $900. In France, $650. Johnson & Johnson charges Americans $79,000 for arthritis medicine Stellara. In Canada, it's $20,000. In France, $12,000. I acknowledge the prices in the United States are higher uh, than they are in many of the countries you said, and, and not for all drugs, but for many drugs, and that, that's the reality we face. But I think it's also important to point out that you get access in the United States faster and more than anywhere in the world. Merck CEO Robert Davis said its cancer drug, Keytruda, has 39 approved uses in the United States, while in Japan there are fewer than 20. He said that's one reason why the prices are so different. Countries have very different systems that prioritize very different things. In Canada, medicines are generally made less available, and it takes oftentimes considerably longer for those medicines to be available. Bristol-Myers Squibb CEO Chris Borner says he's committed to bringing down drug prices in the U.S. I would love the opportunity to bring down the price of Eliquis in the U.S. Our net prices, what we are compensated, have actually over the last five years declined. At that same time, the list prices have increased. Why is that? Because of the complexity of this system Democratic senators expressed their concerns over stock buybacks. 
The company spent billions buying back shares over the years. This directly enriches investors, but doesn't support the development of new drugs. What do you say to folks who look at that and come to the conclusion that you care much more about keeping your investors happy? We have to pay dividends because it's the only way that the company can remain operational and sustainable. Otherwise, if we are not operational and sustainable, we are not able to fulfill our mission of developing medicine for patients. Johnson & Johnson CEO Joaquin Duato said both investing in R&D and stock buybacks are important to the company. Poor stock performance can hurt the company's reputation, its borrowing costs, and its ability to acquire and merge. Activist investors could also jump on board, changing the company's direction. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Coming up, Chinese-backed websites disguised as local news websites and videos on TikTok telling people how to get to the U.S. southern border. Our guest says the Chinese regime is leveraging openness in U.S. society. Here his analysis. And in Olympic news, this summer's medals will feature a unique piece of Paris history. Dave Martin joins us to explain their significance when we return. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. New reports find that the Chinese regime is behind over 100 websites disguised as local news outlets that push pro-CCP content globally. This comes as TikTok and Chinese-owned marijuana farms in the U.S. are also under scrutiny. Joining us now to discuss the Chinese regime's political warfare, we have retired General Robert Spaulding. General Spaulding, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Thank you. Great to be back. Now, a digital watchdog has found that China is behind a hundred websites that appear like local news sites. Now, this is across Europe, Asia, and Latin America. Now, they're adding that this is part of a widespread influence campaign by China to push pro-Beijing content. Now, given that over half of the world has elections this year, how do you see this tying into that? Well, the Chinese Communist Party practices political warfare. Um, it's something that we used to be able to, to do. We did it during the first Cold War. We had something called the U.S. Information Agency. Um, you know, in that case, it was putting out transparency and truth. Um, public diplomacy is what we call it in the United States. And I think we got out of the business of that because we thought there wasn't really a threat to democracy anymore. And in reality, all of these authoritarian regimes led by China, so this acts of evil, if you will, led by China, are bound and determined to convince the populations of free countries that their system is better. And they leverage the economies of the West to be able to do that, so technology, talent, and capital. But also they leverage the openness of those societies in order to get at those that population. And we haven't figured out yet that this is important for us to block, to stop this capability, because it's not uh, about free speech. It's really about uh, destroying the belief in our values and principles. And I think that's something that we need to defend against. And it's just, it's, it's been accelerated during the digital age. And it's something that we haven't yet come to grips with. And so it's something that's important. Um, but Washington DC doesn't seem yet to really realize the fundamental threat that it poses to our democracy. 
Hmm. One area lawmakers are raising concerns over is TikTok. Given that one third of young Americans use that as their news source, how could that impact this U.S. presidential election? Well, uh, if you noticed, uh, too, uh, Chinese um, immigrants are using TikTok, the app, to basically learn to figure out how to come across the southern border. So uh, TikTok is basically a tool of propaganda and psychological and political warfare tool of the Chinese Communist Party. And so not only is it used to inform those uh, you know, illegal immigrants coming across the border from China, it's also used to slowly uh, convince the 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 young people of free societies that China has a better model. They have a better socioeconomic model that, you know, allow them to you know, be more prosperous. And these are, again, it's another threat that we, um, I think we have a very difficult time dealing with because of our openness. And But yet it's still just as fundamental as, say, nuclear weapons or an aircraft carrier, probably more so in that it, it's meant to erode the confidence and the belief in our principles and values and ultimately our constitution. Given all that's at stake here, what can the U.S. do about this? Well, I've been an advocate for a long time of decoupling, which means getting the Chinese Communist Party out of our institutions, whether they be political, academic, financial, economic, or media. They just should not have the ability to interact with our companies our uh, academic institutions, our political institutions, or our businesses. They just need to stay on their side of the Pacific in terms of having interaction with our institutions. Otherwise, they're going to use those interactions to essentially create the kind of, you know, doubt in our society that Active Measures was using to create doubt in the United States. They just didn't have, you know, the Soviet Union in that case did not have the kind of connectivity that the 21st century has given to the Chinese Communist Party. Hmm. Now, in the States, 50 lawmakers are seeking answers from the Justice Department over Chinese-owned marijuana farms that are in the U.S. They're noting there's over 270 in Maine alone, and they the Chinese raked in over $4 billion in revenue just from that. How concerning is this? Well, it's very concerning, considering they're also responsible for the fentanyl uh, influx in the United States and the deaths of tens of thousands of people. I think we have to recognize that Chinese citizens, even though it may seem that they're innocent or they're coming here for the, to, to the United States for a better life, in many cases they're loyal to the Chinese Communist Party and that creates a threat for the United States. So um, whether it's growing marijuana, shipping fentanyl, coming across the border and then being in country where they can uh, potentially attack infrastructure or other a valuable, critical um, national um, uh, capabilities, I think we have to recognize that the Chinese people have been essentially subjugated by the Chinese Communist Party and brainwashed in a way that makes them very uh, loyal to the party and willing to do their bidding. And also, by law, they're required to do so. And in many cases, the Chinese Communist Party uses their family or threats to their family or friends as a way to coerce them into doing what they um, what they want them to do. General Spaulding, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, lots of sports going on, but let's start with Tiger Woods. He's made headlines just by saying he'll play at next week's Genesis Invitational. How big of a tournament is this? Well, for a non-major, I mean, it's actually pretty big. There's a $20 million purse involved. Woods is actually a host for this event. But like you were saying, pretty much any event he attends is news because he just hasn't played much since that horrific car accident three years ago that nearly lost him his leg. Now, this actually was the same event he was attending when he had that accident and he's struggled with pain in his leg ever since despite all those surgeries. Now last year he played in the Masters but was visibly limping. He had to withdraw. Two weeks later he then had surgery on his ankle to address some post-traumatic arthritis that was caused by the crash. He didn't play again until December and when he did he finished 18th out of 20 at the Hero World Challenge. But I'm sure people will still tune into this event. Everyone wants to see if he'll ever return to the forum that made him the best player in the PGA ever. Well, now moving on to Olympic news, the gold, silver, and bronze medals awarded at this summer's games in Paris will actually feature pieces of the Eiffel Tower. Tell us more about that. Yeah, these are obviously very small pieces of iron taken from the Eiffel Tower, as you said. And as you can see in this video, they've been cut into hexagon shapes and are embedded right in the center. That's significant because the French sometimes refer to their country as a hexagon because of its shape. Now, the Eiffel Tower is 135 years old, but it was actually meant, only meant to last for 20 years. They've done many renovations. These little pieces are believed to be taken from pieces that they swapped out like girders or beams or something. Of course, they've been stripped and polished and varnished by a jewelry house. And the medals will actually come with a certificate from the Eiffel Tower operating company saying that this, is, this iron piece came from this monument. So that'll be a unique prize for these athletes. Well, now in Super Bowl news, a former Carolina Panthers head coach Matt Rule says he was overruled when he wanted to select 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy in the draft. Where would this have left San Francisco? Well, I don't think the Niners get here without Brock Purdy. I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks that. I mean, he's a finalist for MVP, and a lot has been made of the fact that he was the 262nd, the very last pick in the 2022 NFL Draft. So every other team had multiple shots at taking him. No one else did. And quarterback is the most important position in the game. If you have a good one, it masks a lot of other problems. Usually the first pick or picks in the draft are for quarterbacks because good ones are so hard to find. And to think one of the best in the game was one pick away from going undrafted, I'm sure it frustrates a lot of scouts out there who didn't see his talent. It can be a humbling business. Now, not only that, but San Francisco got star running back Christian McCaffrey from the Panthers, in part because the team was struggling. Now, had they taken Purdy, would they have been struggling and still dealt McCaffrey? I'm kind of doubting so. But it, so it could have, I'm sorry, it could have dramatically changed the Niners team as it is. Ultimately, they were the only ones who saw enough talent in him to draft, and they, they look pretty smart for doing so. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.